Hello, and welcome to the BPL podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and I'm here today with two very special guests, uh, Melissa Michael and Julie Swarstad Johnson. So Melissa and Julie are here ahead of their program this evening. I'm here at the library. So thank you, Melissa and Julie, for coming on the podcast and coming in early to do it. We're excited to be here. <laughs> excited Aaron. to have you. Yeah. So Julie Swarstad Johnson is the author of Pennsylvania Furnace, Editor's Choice Selection for the Unicorn Press First Book Series. Her chapbook, Orchard Light, is forthcoming from Seven Kitchens Press in 2020. She has served as artist-in-residence at Gettysburg National Military Park, and she is the co-editor of Beyond Earth's Edge, the Poetry of Spaceflight. She lives in Tucson and works at the University of Arizona Poetry Center. Melissa Michael is of Seneca, Welsh, and English descent. She is a fiction writer, essayist, photographer, and a literature and creative writing professor. Melissa has work appearing in the Florida Review, Arcana, Yellow Medicine Review, and University of Iowa's International Writing Program's Narrative Witnessing Project. Her short story collection, Living Along the Borderlines, out with Feminist Press, was a finalist for the Louise Merriweather First Book Prize. Her first novel, Along the Hills, and nonfiction lyric essay collection, Broken Blood, are both finished. She is at work on a new dystopian novel. So thanks again for, for coming in. Uh, so, Julie, you're, you live in Tucson, right? I do, yeah. Uh, so is this your first time in Columbus? You know, I, I drove through Columbus once, so I lived in Pennsylvania for a couple years for grad school. Um, and in making that trek from Tucson out to Pennsylvania, um, there was, like, one night that I've been in Columbus. But this is the first time that I've, like, actually been in the city. Um, and I just came from Cincinnati over the weekend, so this has been, like, the first stretch of time I've spent in Ohio. Okay, how's it going? Yeah, it's good. It's uh, There's been a lot of snow and rain, so that's been... Coming from Arizona, that's always kind of a nice reminder that there's a different world out there. For sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah and this uh, this has been, like, probably one of the more wintry type of weekends um, that we've had. It's been a pretty mild winter here, actually, so yeah. far, but... Yeah, yeah but, but both cities are really interesting. I always enjoy, like, East Coast cities, just kind of have a different feel and nice to see the, the different neighborhoods. For sure, yeah. So I just wanted to, you know, ask you both sort of about uh, some of your new collections and, and your writing and, and things like that. So, Melissa, your book, Living on the Borderlines, introduces contemporary Haudenosaunee characters and how intergenerational trauma affects their lives. Can you talk a little bit about the Haudenosaunee people and what types of issues these characters in your book face? So much of the book is based around thinking through what the aftermath of my community living through the boarding school era has been and what that means on today's characters and relationships with family, particularly women. I really wanted to focus on female characters as leads throughout many of the stories because so often we have male lead characters, especially male indigenous lead characters. Mm -hmm. And what's that like between mothers and daughters and grandmothers and if you're living as a single woman or um, just you know learning about yourself um, as a as a woman walking through this world. So a lot of it is thinking about what has that done to our relationships with one another as well as the place around us um, and how we connect to it or maybe feel disconnected from it. Okay. And and so uh, when I was looking into, you know, I was looking at your website and whatnot ahead of the podcast, you know, one of the things I noticed was, you know, the sort of mission that you have to restructure education, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of things centered around otherness yeah. um, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and I kept seeing the good mind mm -hmm. I mentioned. Um, yes. Can you talk about what, what that means? Yes. So 
The good mind is thinking through several different principles and thinking about peace and equity and justice and connection and how we can have peace in mind and when we're trying to work through things be of one mind versus all these like separate minds wanting to go in separate different directions but how can we think of um with that one mind for the good of the future generations essentially so how can we all come together to have that kind of peace and that connection and that brotherhood to really think about what our decisions are doing and what they could do what could they could better do for future generations so that's kind of like a really quick and and not quite in depth <laughs> what that really is and what that looks like and there's I have them on my webpage too like videos that you can go to and hear from elders and how they think about it but what that meant for my collection was and for edu- and within education in both because I always think about my writing as an educative kind of tool mm-hmm. and so I my audience for me first starts with my community and with my students and what is it can they take away that they can maybe see themselves because we don't often have indigenous characters in literature and maybe students can learn something about the boarding school era and what that's like and what we're living through now with that so the good mind is partially that too is like we are adding on to knowledge systems we are not taking Mm -hmm. over we're saying here is what happened to us and here is how it exists in this particular history and time and space and to know that creates better brotherly relationships okay yeah does that answer it does yeah (laughs) and so i guess just like digging into it a little bit more so so you mentioned um you know both your your book and, and then your explanation of the good mind you know indigenous people surviving this boarding school era. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Do you mean what the boarding school era is or what that means to survive after or? I I guess maybe start with what it is, like an overview, like maybe for listeners that aren't familiar with. There's just so much. That's like, that's, I think that's part of the the problem um, and why I think we really need to incorporate it into education. I was actually recently just talking about this because mm-hmm. whenever I teach Native American literature, for example, um, that's a really challenging class to teach and it's also a really challenging class to take mm-hmm. because I often tell my students, and I'll front of the classroom first week, I was like, I usually say something along the lines of, okay, I'm gonna have to take you from kindergarten to college. Mm-hmm. in learning about these kinds of issues which is really hard in a 15-week class mm-hmm. and it's, we're not learning everything that we need to learn because it's only one class and I think it should be across the curriculum mm-hmm. just like writing should be across the curriculum right the mm-hmm. more that we incorporate it the more we work that critical thinking and so to really try to have students and and anyone else digest those histories in like one moment or one story is really difficult to do and I think the more stories and the more voices we have, which is why I started with a short story collection and why the novel Along the Hills actually incorporates many main characters instead of one or two that might be typical for a novel is because of that, the more voices that we have, the better we can understand those experiences and what happened in the boarding school period. So a lot of what happened in the boarding school period, and this is both for within the United States and Canada as well, they had boarding schools, is it was an era that ran from the late 1800s on up until um, 
the late 1970s, although I think the last boarding school to close was somewhere around like 1990, 91. But what happened during those particular periods were children were um, both people would would come around and request that um, children from the tribal nations would go to these particular schools. Sometimes they were taken, sometimes they were kidnapped. Um, a lot of the promises were that you would see your children back for summer. <clears throat> but the thing about that is, A, they were always further away from their homes, and that was very intentional because the further away, the less likely they could run away and go back home, or the less likely they would go back home, say, for the day if it were a day school, which they also had previous to that. Mm-hmm. They would then go back to speaking their own language, and so they wouldn't be as assimilated so to speak, which is what they really wanted. They knew back in that period that assimilation meant... uh, So Richard Henry Pratt was the first to have a school, and this was in um, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It's Carlisle Indian Industry School, and his phrase was, kill the Indian, save the man. So they knew that it was killing the identity. They knew that this was a form of genocide. Mm -hmm. So, as you can imagine, going to those schools and having that, having your teachers and the administrators, that that was their thought in their head. We're going to save the man. We're going to get rid of the Indian. How difficult and really traumatizing those situations could be. And they differed at every school, some better than others. Um, Some of them were vocational. but a lot of that was, you may only speak English, we're going to cut your hair, you can't wear this clothing anymore, you will never speak your language. Um, there was punishments for those sorts of things, again, depending on the school. And so there was a shame around being from your particular nation. Mm-hmm. So when you send those students back into the community, then they have children. And there's a shame around speaking the language. Mm-hmm. They don't want to pass that on to their children for fear of getting into trouble or whatever that may be. Then those children grow up having these these gaps as well. Now, on, on one hand, we have, and I, I really always want to make this clear, on one hand, we have this clear darkness that is trauma and genocide. But on the other hand, it's also really important to know, and I really try to show this in my stories, and I really try to work that through my collection as well, is moving from darkness into light, is that we are also resilient. We made it through these sorts of things. You couldn't take us down. Mm-hmm. You tried, but we're still here. Um, so that's really quick, I think, version of what it is that I attempt to do in all of my work, is to really just get a picture of, what was it like? What is it like today? What could it be like in the future if we continue, people continue to not know about these things and not have this knowledge about not only boarding schools, but histories of massacres and pillaging villages and burning crops and all those things to try to get rid of us for land. And so um, that is what I want people to take away is there's these this both and which is also very is good-minded and also two row philosophy that there are two many things going on at once and lots of gray in between of course but there are all these sides and important important characteristics of who we are and what we've been through 
yeah, th- yeah, thank you so much for giving us an overview of that. I know it's sorry to be like, hey, can you, <laughs> you know, shorten this very complex and difficult history into a podcast format? You yeah, know? So okay. thank you yeah. for, you know, sharing that. And it's, it's very helpful to sort of um, contextualize. Mm-hmm. Um, so it uh, this sort of reminds me of, so Dr. Hassan Jeffries at, at OSU, um, he's presented multiple times at here at Bexley and is an amazing speaker and, and his uh, mission or one one of his missions is to change the way that um, American slavery is taught mm-hmm. in public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has, you know, that's like part of his, part of his life's work right now. Um, and so he did a program about that and basically just how many things are either taught just straight up incorrectly or a lot yes. of things are like sort of like whitewashed or glossed over or left um, out or left yeah. out exactly so it seems like you know there's sort of some parallels there um mm-hmm. in terms of the way things are taught and like you're saying it's it's should be a you know k through 12 or or k through college like an entire curriculum's you know basis so how are you supposed to do that in one semester or mm-hmm. two semesters or something like that so well that's so. what i hope literature is there to offer yeah. mm-hmm. is to bring some of that into the forefront where maybe then it becomes a bigger part of education but the stories are there they exist and what I always say is you have to seek them out because we are here so even if you're not getting them in a literature classroom or wherever that may be there's so many out there it's true yeah and what better way to build empathy than experience you know these stories through these characters and live you know through them mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so so switching gears here so julie um mm-hmm. so in your book pennsylvania furnace um so these poems they take place across many regions and, and multiple time periods mm-hmm. um i was wondering did you when you constructed this collection was that intentional uh, or did it just sort of happen organically or yeah it's mm-hmm. a little bit of both so um pennsylvania furnace started as my um mfa thesis Um, So I did my MFA at Penn State, um, had two years to um, write and to try to finish uh, a collection. That's the challenge of an MFA program for writers, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a challenge. (laughs) Um, So when I was there, I grew up in Arizona, moved to Pennsylvania. That was the first time I had lived somewhere out of the Southwest. Um, And so living in Pennsylvania was just totally, um, totally new and different and strange for me. Uh, so one of the ways that I tried to make sense of that landscape and to try to make sense of this new place was just by learning about it. And so in working on this MFA thesis, um, I turned to writing about history. And so at that point, the book that I wrote in those two years was mainly just the like past, um, learning about the past of the particular region that, we, that I lived in. Um, which was uh, really iron industry heavy. Um, so during the 19th century pre-industrial revolution, uh, like small small scale iron making uh, was a main a major thing that happened in central Pennsylvania. Um, so rather than uh, making steel in cities, this was small communities making iron and kind of center centered around that process. So uh, where where I lived in Pennsylvania in State College, um, there were remnants of that. There were actual furnace stacks all over the place. Um, I'm looking at Melissa while I'm saying this because you you lived there too. I'm saying I lived there, but we were there at the same time. That was where we met met each other. Um, but so there were uh, furnace stacks all over the place, and um, it was something to latch on to for me, I think. It was something to, to find my bearings by. Um, so yeah, at that point, it was all focused on that history and kind of, there was the past, I was writing about the past, and then I also had 
um, some present day speaker poems that were me kind of trying to make sense of, um, of doing that exploring, of doing that, trying to figure things out. Um, so I didn't totally feel like I had finished the book by the time I graduated, like I had finished the requirement. Um, but I, I moved back to Arizona, my husband and I moved back um, for jobs. And at that point, I really didn't write for a while. Um, so it was hard to, to then go back to that project I had started and the landscape I had left behind. Um, so I started writing about Arizona and I pretty quickly found that the poems I was writing about Arizona in the present um, were dealing with a lot of the same themes as those past past um, industry-focused poems, thinking about kind of urban sprawl or um, large-scale mining in Arizona. I think those things are, I mean, there's that that American industrial use use everything, burn everything, we, we want to make money. Um, mm-hmm. That's like a main American drive. And I think that's as much present in a big city like Phoenix um, or being in contemporary Arizona where we kind of use water without thinking about it. Um, that very much relates to this industrial past in, in Pennsylvania, um, where all the resources got used to, to try to make something. Erase the landscape. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think it was with a sense of, like, we're going to make something, we're making something good. Um, it was interesting in writing those poems about the past. I have some that are persona poems and the voices of people both in, like, the 1930s and in, like, the later 19th century, um, and they're based on like actual published writing or like manuscript writing that I found in archives and was working with. And I think for people in those time periods looking at what they were doing, there was this sense of like, we're making something, we're doing something, because they, they really just saw that like prog- the progress with like scare quotes narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for me in the present looking at that, I, I, you know, I'm seeing the erasing the land, mm-hmm. I'm seeing the erasing the people that were already there. Um, and so that's part of building this book for me is thinking about those layers of perspective and how at different times we can see it in different ways. Okay, yeah, well, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Like the, because I mean, we're not talking about, I guess in the grand scheme of things, that much time yeah, passing. Yeah, so definitely. Completely different perspectives of like, you know, this sort of, I don't know, I guess um, American, again, air quotes, uh, yeah. <laughs> idea of, of um, yeah, like taking whatever you can from the land and right. progress and all yeah. that versus um, a more recent perspective of conservation and uh-huh. um, respecting the land and people that are there and whatnot. Yeah, and even just, like, understanding climate change. Like, oh, that yeah. we can, even, like, in, like, the course of our all of our lifetimes sitting here, mm-hmm. that that has become so apparent. Absolutely. Um, in a way that it wasn't previously. Or, I mean, or maybe that it could have been, but nobody knew that that's what they were, nobody knew that that's what yeah. they were looking at 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, this is this is a very broad question, but um, for, for the both of you, can you talk a little bit about how um, both identity and religion sort of affect your writings or impact your writings? Sure. Yeah. So for me, um, for me, the like identity, religion, and I, religion is like the main thing for me that I would uh, put my identity around, or being a Christian specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- and I think that would be, we were talking about this last night, actually, talking about that we write about things that are really important to us, and you kind of wonder as a writer, like, is that coming through? Like, is it apparent to people that I'm writing about climate change, or is it apparent um, that I care about the land being erased? Like, mm-hmm. I hope that that, it, that, that comes through, um, but especially writing poems, but I think also writing fiction, you wonder how much that, 
you know, you're not just writing an essay and saying, this is what I believe, this is what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you're telling it, um, I think for both of us, you're, you know, you're telling those values, you're telling those things that you um, really connect with in an indirect way or by looking, I think in a poem often, it's like I'm looking at something, like the, the idea of the poem is in one place and the idea behind it is somewhere off to the side. Um, so for me, with thinking about being a Christian and specifically being like I would identify with the part of Christianity that um, like the historic peace churches so um, the parts of the church that see pacifism as part of um, as part of the gospel or part of being in the world mm-hmm. um, that's something that I've kind of come to throughout my life but arrived at on my own as an adult um, and so for me that's a big part of how I move through the world like how I interact with people or what I choose to do with my time Um, But specifically right now, it's coming through, I'm writing, I'm kind of in the midst of a project or hoping that I'm going to get back to this project um, of writing about the experiences of Christian pacifists during the Civil War. Um, So I've just finished, uh, or I guess not just finished, but I have a chapbook forthcoming of um, poems about uh, German Baptist brethren, which um, are a Christian pacifist group, um, the experiences of, of a particular family at Gettysburg. Um, and so for me, choosing, I kind of stumbled into that subject matter, but I chose to write about it because I felt like it was a way of exploring um, exploring something that's important to me in the present, but having a little bit of distance um, to be able to look at it in the past and to be able to look at people's past experiences. Um, also, I mean, writing about, talking about like like the multiplicity of stories, like Gettysburg and the Civil War is something that huge amounts of people are interested in. and. Um, tons have been has been written on, but to think about pacifists in the middle of that is like a very not explored topic. Yeah. Um, so hopefully it's like I, I think about that as being like a way to bring something different to the table, um, and to hope, hopefully give people something surprising that they wouldn't have expected. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I don't know if that kind of wandered away, but I guess uh, to return to your question, yeah, that I, I have a sense of like my own identity and what's important to me. And that definitely does direct like what I choose to write about or, or how I choose to write about it. Okay, yeah. That's cool. I'm excited about your new collection. Yeah. I don't know I've heard you talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like the topic itself. Mm-hmm. I knew it yeah. was coming out, which is exciting. I think, I mean, I hear a lot, of, I mean, I always hear this with both of our work. I hear a lot of crossover. For me, where that arises out of is my community and the way that I think about how I put my work out into the world comes out of the good mind and comes from, for us, the peacemaker who brought, I won't go into that, I encourage everyone to look that up, mm-hmm. but who brought our nations together um, and what that means with like bringing each other together and what that means with, again, having you know these many voices to be speaking versus one character or versus just me say for example I do write nonfiction as well but I'm also thinking about the students in the classroom and the, the the other people that I'm interacting with in the other spaces and having all those voices come together versus it's not this like self-centered kind of place that it arises out of mm-hmm. which for me I think of that in a spiritual kind of way um, in how I'm relating to community and people as well as to the land mm-hmm. I don't know, is that, that's one of those things that I know is it's obvious to people that my writing and where I actually arose out of came from environmental writing, although it's very different from environmental writing, but that um, 
moment of very close, careful observation and spending time in a place and spending time outside, not in a building, and really connecting in, in that kind of way. I know there's a lot of sunsets in my <laughs> in my book. <laughs> that's that's honestly where I first learned to do that. My grandparents had cottages up at the Thousand Islands, and that's where I first learned how to slow down. Mm-hmm. And so really pay attention to being in a space versus always like running around and doing something, but being in that moment to watch those sunsets or marshmallows over the campfire with family or whatever that mm-hmm. may be has then become this... Um, trying to take the time to slow down and get to know a background that was erased from me. Um, And what does that mean or look like for the many differences that exist in people in my community and in indigenous communities in general and how, you know, that could impact us in the future. So my relationship to that good mind principle also connects to how I end things and where I don't want to leave my characters just in... Like, some of them are left in complicated spaces because that's life. Mm-hmm. But also, like, the way that my books end and even the way that my novels end and even the dystopian... Well, I don't... Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> I mean... You can always edit that. Is, yeah. <laughs> is that there is... I mean, I won't say, but that there is a, a space for, like, hope and continuance and working yeah. together. Mm-hmm. And then it's not always this, like being dragged down by what has come before us but if we could all like work through that healing together because if it's just me or if it's just my community working on it it's not going to work we all come together and do that then that's when we move through that and that's what I want to see and it does arise out of that for uh, that good mind for me yeah okay yeah so it's almost this like um like building that resilience, like you mentioned earlier, through like community and awareness and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, very well, very interesting um, things to consider. I, I always like am impressed. I guess is the word with um, the amount of like emotional mining that it takes to be a writer because yeah. you're you're consciously so cognizant of all these different aspects, um, of, like you mentioned, of community and erasure and all all these. Um, like relationships I think that's part of the drive to make art is that it's like that you have like having all of that in you and needing to do something with Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. needing to be able to express that or wanting Mm -hmm. to give people Mm -hmm. wanting to work through that Mm -hmm. yeah for sure Um, and this is this is sort of very I probably left field thought that I had um, while you were answering uh, Julie it was like um, because you were talking about how you're concerned about the things that you care about being expressed through your writing Uh and like um, this a very different field, but I was listening to this podcast with two comedians, and they were talking about how like there's this pressure these days that like if if you're doing comedy and you're not speaking truth to power, then your comedy is like useless. Mm. You know, it's like it's basically hard to be like I don't know silly or talk about things that are ultimately insignificant or yeah. like you know mm. um, because of like our current landscape and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah. Sort mm-hmm. of like the pressures that are put on like I guess mm. you know in a way that their writers too definitely um, oh so, yes yeah um, I thought it was really interesting I hadn't thought about that yeah no I think about that a lot I thought about that a lot with writing about 
I tend to write about kind of obscure things, I guess you could say. I mean, like writing about like the 19th century. Cool, cool things. They're cool, yeah. All right, I'll take that. But I I write about things that are maybe a little obscure, like pacifists, iron, Just not in people's like immediate shot. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We're bringing some new light. But no, I think about like in choosing to write about that, I do, I have, I've had a lot of times of feeling like, oh, is this like meaningless or... Mm. Um, cause I, I mean, I care about things that are happening in the present moment, mm-hmm. moment deeply. Um, and I guess what I've decided is I think in writing about those other things, I am writing about things that are happening right now. Mm-hmm. And I also have like a life as a human, aside from being a writer where mm-hmm. I'm in, engaged in things that connect with current issues. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to, you know, no, no one writer can address everything. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, that's kind of the beauty again of art of, mm-hmm. you know, different people are called to different things. Mm-hmm. And thinking about that sitting in a library, I mean, that's the beauty of a library full of books mm-hmm. um, so that can present all of those things. So true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Your writing has meaning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always does. Um, wait, was that was just a question for her. Oh, no. This is a free phone it's conversation. True, yeah. <laughs> something to add to this. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not that strict, I promise. <laughs> Um, well, I think as writers, we tend to, and I have to shut this down in my students too, we tend to beat ourselves up. Yeah. Where does that come from? I don't know. Um, maybe it's all that that's flowing out too. Yeah. That I was, we're yeah. like letting like flow out. It's really hard, complicated stuff. So then somehow it like bangs back on us to beat mm-hmm. us up. I don't know. Um, but much too hard and I think that's because we're trained to be really analytical mm-hmm. about writing and about literature and yeah. maybe it comes from that I think we just all need to stop that yeah. <laughs> and yeah. be better and kinder to ourselves as writers but it's also right now a really difficult time to get published especially with some of these topics that we write about mm-hmm. and maybe that's part of where the beating up is coming from is because the industry is also telling us no you're not good enough we're not going to publish that and some of it is that and some of it isn't personal at all it's just taste um and some of it's there's themes popping up and whatever it is that they're seeing but all of that like coming back to you and not enough who was it that was talking about this recently it doesn't matter um was talking about too too much emphasis on what others were thinking and how others are responding mm-hmm. and it's too negative and not enough emphasis on owning ourselves and who we are and that that's important and that we don't need to listen to those who are being negative mm-hmm. um yeah I wonder if some of that comes from the internet because like with the yes. internet I feel like you get immediate feedback and which in some ways can be really yes. good. Like I feel like I experience can also a be lot triggering. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that it's like, there's a sense of like everybody is right there mm-hmm. with you when you're writing, um, rather than like mm-hmm. Thoreau hanging out at Walden pond, mm-hmm. distant, distant, but not so distant mm-hmm. from everybody. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> a good point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess the moral of the story is it's difficult being a writer. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so be nice to your writers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder too if some of it's like, you know, being in a society that sees, I think art is often kind of presented as something extra rather than art and literature and all of those things Mm -hmm. are something extra rather than central. And I Mm -hmm. think they are central. They're part of, Mm -hmm. they're part of life and they're, they're, they're not just something you do Mm -hmm. if you have time. It's like we, 
Mm-hmm. I think most artists are making art or writing because they feel driven to do so. Yes. But it's like a core core part of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's something I think about a lot. I, I studied music in, in undergrad and still do it on the side. Okay. Um, outside of the library. So, I yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something we do because we have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think we're running a bit short of time. Um, I want to give you some time before your uh, presentation tonight. Okay. So again, Melissa and Julie, thanks so much um, for coming on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Definitely check out um, Julie and Melissa's work. Um, so thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate the time.